0: The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Today FM. Let's go to the week trending with Aoife Barry, assistant news editor at the Journal.ie, and Mark Paul, business columnist with the Irish Times. Aoife, I thought all political symbols were banned from the World Cup, so how come there have been Palestinian flags, not just in the crowd, but also occasionally on the pitch?
1: Yeah, it's, I suppose, all about context in many ways. I um, you will have seen a lot of pieces and, uh, you know, video pieces, articles, um, photographs as well of the Palestinian flag and armbands as well with the Palestinian flag and kind of symbols on them being shown off at the World Cup. And it has become something that, unlike the rainbow flag, is allowed to be uh, displayed in Qatar. I mean, the context there being, um, you know, the Arab context, uh, the Arab context and the idea that um, solidarity of Palestine is held very close to obviously a lot of people um, across the Arab world and that it's showing support for Palestine. Um, we saw it predominantly when Morocco were playing. I think they're the only um, Arab country in, in the World Cup. So you saw it But they're only what's
0: left because left Qataris in the, sorry, left in the World, world Cup. are gone. Yeah. Yes,
1: sorry, exactly. Uh, at that stage they were anyway. I think it was one of their last games. Um, they showed off the Palestinian flag. Their supporters did. Um, saw people in the crowd. It's become a big feature of the World Cup but obviously people then... Um, even if they support perhaps the move, they might also question, well, how come other symbols, how come there's such a massive, huge, big deal, um, huge drama, understandably, about the um, LGBTQ plus armbands and kind of solidarity um, with people of different sexualities, uh, how that's kind of banned in Qatar. And there's been, you know, many moves against that. Uh, Why is there kind of not the the same uh, mode of dealing with, with this flag as it is with the other symbols.
0: Yeah, it's the interesting point, Mark, because you know, the players were afraid to wear the armbands, the captains of the European teams in the first round in case they get booked the Moroccan players weren't booked for waving a, Mar- a Palestinian flag, albeit after a game.
2: Look, I think uh, from the start of this World Cup, the Qatari authorities have showed their determination to do it their way. Um, I mean, like you know, on the eve of the World Cup, they banned alcohol in the stadiums. And look, they're, they're making clear you're, you're talking about um, a country Qatar that has you know a quarter of a million Palestinians live there, and um, the Palestinian cause is a huge cause for all of Arabs. And um, I think the Qatari government, obviously, and, and, and people feel put upon by a lot of the criticism, regardless of where. you're where you stand on that, um, they do feel put upon and, and, and they're just going to let this thing slide. I mean, for an Arab government to ba- to, to, to allow on its territory the banning of the Palestinian flag, I think would be a step too far for the Qataris, like having drink in the stadiums. I mean, the Palestinian flag in itself isn't you know, it's not offensive. FIFA's rules say it can't be political, it can't be discriminatory or it can't be uh, offensive. offensive. Now it's not offensive or discriminatory, it is clearly a political statement. Uh, you know, Palestinian flags often, you often find them in football stadiums in, in a different Sorry, context.
0: Then the, the corollary of that though is that then the LBGQ plus flags, the rainbow flags, they're discriminatory, are they? I thought they were anti-discriminatory. They're
2: offensive? No. Well, Politi- they're not offensive to us. P- political. But look, the Qata- as I said, the Qataris are going to do it their way. It's a little bit different to when you see the Palestinian flag in football stadiums over here. I mean, I remember when Ireland played Israel in 2006 as a World Cup qualifier. Lansdowne Road was full of Palestinian flags and I actually, I didn't like it um, because it's it, they were just taunting the Israeli fans. The same when Celtic, um, uh, you know, six or seven years ago were fined in in a European tie for waving Palestinian flags when they were playing against um, Hapoel el um, in, in a match. So, look, it all depends on, as, as Aoife said, it all depends on the context. And the context here is that you're in an Arab country. This is a pan-Arab um, um, cause, the Palestinian cause. And the Moroccan players um, um, and, and the fans in the stadium, they weren't going to let their, um, their opportunity pass. Um, and, look, Israel aren't there, so they're not using it to taunt Israeli fans. They're using it um, to shout for the Palestinians. I mean, look, I... It's probably against the technically and, and against the spirit of the FIFA's rules. But look, uh, uh, I think this rise and effect will come into place. But does it balance. also
0: show perhaps that it really is a way of showing for the rest of the world Western values are not going to be perceived as the dominant ones?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of messages, I suppose, being sent out by what's allowed and what isn't allowed in Qatar. And I don't think people expected Qatar to toe the line in terms of going back to what Mark was saying. Like, they're not going to necessarily um, bow down to decisions that other people want them to make. And like, I suppose in these sort of situations, it also makes you wonder about um, FIFA and the decisions that FIFA makes and how slow it is to make decisions on things like the armbands, which is why we saw like the German uh, team, for example, all take, getting the, posing for a photograph, covering their mouths symbolising the fact that they were silenced. so I think it was more
0: symbolising the forthcoming shock of getting knocked out in the first round. <laughs> but but think, anyway. Well,
1: that too perhaps. Um, so, I mean, you, you do have reactions against decisions that people aren't, aren't happy with but I, I think it's just really a really interesting example of holding the World Cup in Qatar and what that brings with it and the cultural context of different things and how the Palestinian flag in one context means something and in another context it means something differently and there are a lot of Israeli uh, fans over at the World Cup they're able to travel over and, you know, you, there, there were examples of Israeli press as well who were treated kind of badly or were ignored or had things kind of shouted at them when they're over in Qatar too. So people were using their chance if they wanted to to express how they felt about Israel's role um, in that part of the world. So I think it's been very interesting to see, and there's a lot of really interesting analysis from people who are there um, that I was reading, or you know, over the last kind of while about it. So I think if you don't know a lot about the context of it, I think it's really well worth seeking out the voices of people from that part of the world who've been writing about okay. about this particular thing. Let's move
0: on elsewhere in the world, and uh, the country that has voted in its parliament to approve legislation to outlaw extramarital sex. I uh, suppose that raises two questions. Why? And then how are they going to
2: enforce this? Well, look, the, the country is Indonesia, the most populous Muslim country in the world. It has a Dutch colonial past um, Indonesia. And, and, and a lot of its penal code um, are based on old Dutch colonial laws. So as part of a, the replacement of, of that code and the rooting out of colonial laws, they snuck this thing into it. So basically what they've brought in, they've outlawed sex before marriage and they've outlawed cohabiting um, between unmarried people. You can get a year in prison for sex um, before marriage and you can get six months um, for cohabiting. And of course how do you enforce it? You can't really enforce it. Um, in order for, I, I think actually the Australian media are quite funny. They've been calling it the Bali bunk ban because, <laughs> um, because you know, one million Australian tourists a year go to Bali. Um, but are they they're going to have to prove they're married now to gain admission to a hotel room? Well, the law applies to them but it doesn't apply in practice because you can, the, the police can only act on foot of a complaint from the spouse, the child or the parent of somebody. So unless you go and you, uh, as an Australian tourist or as an Irish tourists or any tourists and sleep with somebody from Indonesia, um, and and their parent or their child or their spouse complains, um, you're fine because I mean your own parent or child or spouse is unlikely to complain about it. And um, when you look into the, the thing, though, I kind of wonder if this whole thing about um, the sex ban, if it's really to divert from what the real evil I think within this code, that the, the replacement of the code, um, which is the, the they've put in a ban on insulting the president, and they've put in a load of freedom of speech restrictions, and they've 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 brought in um, um, laws on on insulting the something. Like insulting state institutions and you kind of wonder if that's the real danger in these laws and if the likes of a sex before marriage ban it's just to distract from the real danger within it.
1: It also though it cracks down on LGBTQ plus couples as well it's kind of a, a way of ensuring if you can't marry because uh, you're a same sex couple then you absolutely under this law won't be allowed to cohabitate or ha- have sex before, mar- before marriage because you won't be allowed to get married so then the question is whether or not people might be more inclined to complain about gay couples Um because they because they feel that they're uh, breaking this law, so it's it's interesting to see, um, I suppose, how fragile people's rights are. You know, human rights are always fragile, no matter what part of the world you live in. We saw in the U.S., Roe versus Wade, women's rights are under threat. Go to Indonesia, people's rights across other the spectrums under threat. Um, there's three, it's three years on before this comes into place, so you would wonder if there will be some sort of pushback against it. But at the same time, the parliament are all in agreement, so they're the ones that are setting this law. They're the ones that are. Rightfully replacing those colonial laws and bringing in their own laws, and it does set the the standard for what they want their country to be. And it is probably a very scary moment for a lot of people who are living there if they disagree with it or if they feel like they could be cracked down, particularly um, if they're LGBTQ.
0: Okay, listener says the Palestinian flag is not a political symbol; it represents a physical place you can actually go to and visit. It represents hope to many Palestinians in Palestine. We give out about footballers not raising awareness over one political issue and then chastise them when they raise awareness over. For another one, if they were waving a flag of hezbollah or the Palestinian Liberation Front, it would be very much different well i 'm not sure anyone here is chastising uh, the Moroccan players or anyone else. The only point we're pointing out is the maybe the hypocrisy of FIFA deciding that certain things cannot be allowed and other things can be and uh, maybe it would have been better if the lgbtq plus protests had been allowed and then Nobody would have said anything about the Palestinian flags whatsoever. Anyone watched any of this documentary with... Megan and Harry. (laughs) I
2: I, I watched it last night and to tell you the truth, I I mean, I watched the first episode, I started into the second episode and then I woke up at the end of the third episode. So I actually fell asleep watching it last night on the couch. (laughs) Look, that's that's, Why did you watch it in the first place? Ah, Look, I just wanted to see what it was about, what all the fuss was about. I mean, if you open any of the British newspapers, particularly the Daily Mail, I mean, you're just hit with just Mm. a a, a total orgy of this stuff. Look, it's pure... Which is,
0: sorry, which is remarkably hostile to Megan in particular
2: and also to Harry, which in some respects you would say almost goes to prove their point. It goes It goes right at the heart of what we are saying. The, the, the argument that Harry and Meghan, the Sussexes, or you it's know, the, the, the Sussexes, the, yeah. the, the argument that they're making is that um, Meghan was treated differently because she's biracial um, um, and that you know, the hostility towards her increased, that she got no protection from the family, uh, uh, from the royal family and that and that essentially they were hung out to dry. Um, and Look, the, it's pure propaganda but so is all the stuff on the other side. I mean, there's not a lot, factually there's not a lot new in it. What is interesting about it is just watching how Harry and Meghan view themselves, and 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 you know they, they, they are
0: they narcissists as has been
2: probably, probably a little bit, but 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 that doesn't mean that they're also not put upon, and that she wasn't treated really really terribly. I don't know how and she got that through this some of that coverage. Was
0: also very hurtful, perhaps even to him, because of what happened to his mother.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, thing is like what happened to them proved the point of what himself and his brother would have been, you know, traumatised about, which is like how their mother was treated and how she was hounded by paparazzi for years and those the awful circumstances of her death and that idea of them kind of being this new generation and Harry in particular wanting to eventually step outside of the traditional rules of the monarchy and do his own thing and how he in turn got punished, just like his mother, who was a little bit different to the royals, got punished for being different as well too. So you can see the parallels really clearly between her generation and his generation and you can see, you know, how someone like Meghan would have represented almost a threat to the monarchy because she represented all of these different things that they hadn't had in the monarchy before. This American woman coming in and she was willing to stand up to the hierarchy willing to stand, stand up to the monarchy, and as a result, she got punished for it. But there you, was an
0: American woman mm, before in the nineteen thirties, of course, yeah, of who Q also who position. also didn't oh. uh, probably didn't
1: have the world's greatest time either. Yeah. Too,
0: um, but, but sorry, is there a thing with this that uh, this is the great distraction for the British that they have plenty to be worrying about at pro- present? They have a political system yeah. in mm, flux. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. have inflation the rocketing. They have all sorts of arguments going on about bad practice in their politics and this is what they're talking
2: about. And, and look, and it also you know, that old cliche, it also sells newspapers. I mean, look at the Daily Mail, go on to its website. The first 12 stories are all um, royal yeah. stories and, and and the reaction in the British media, as you say, it's a big distraction to all the trouble that's going on. I mean it maybe it's a little bit of escapism for some people getting into this sort of, you know, 100 um, year old Kardashian show. Um, and But look, if you, the reaction the British media has been incredible, but my favourite line on the whole thing actually came in, in a paper that's not royalist at all, it's the Guardian. You could ever call it a Guardian royalist. And Lucy Mangan in "The Guardian," was talking about how you know, the, the, the royal family um, um, wouldn't have welcomed the release of this show and that it dropped onto Netflix today like a turd into a stocking, um, which I just thought was. was Quite a gift. I just thought was was, was, a, was one of the best lines that I read on it. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the reaction has been fascinating.
1: And I think, yeah, and I think the thing is that that you know that Harry and Meghan don't toe the line when they're expected to toe the line, and they don't toe it in, in a number of different ways. And the fact also on the other hand that they are willing to put their lives out there as a kind of a reality show, while also appealing for privacy, really rubs people up the wrong way because it's kind of like trying to have your cake and and eating it. You know, you you want to have a private life but at the same time you're going to get paid 112 million dollars to do a Netflix series about your life where you have it. You know, mostly have control over the narrative. So I can you can see why they they draw the criticism for how they deal with it at the same time. Another
0: story I saw, Eva on the mail this week was the shock and horror that Kate Winslet, the actress, had turned up at a red carpet event wearing the same dress she had worn previously. Yeah. Albeit four years ago.
1: Well, I mean, I kind of wondered about the shock and horror shows so where her dress is seven years old and uh, she last wore, it, you know, two tw- in 2015 and she turned up at it again and I feel like it's these days she's actually tying in with the whole push for sustainability with the anti-fast fashion stuff she's always traded and being very relatable a woman who even though she's very rich and famous and lives in Hollywood and has a lovely life there and stars in amazing movies that she's very down to earth she referred to herself when she was interviewed as kind of like you know the mum doing the, the school run when I mean you can imagine a school run for Kate Winslow isn't like school run for anybody listening to this radio show um, so I, I like that she in a way was appealing to the, 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 the good and, and, and kind of push towards sustainability. But at the end of the day, like she isn't quite like us, she is very uh, rich and famous. But I do think she's a very likable person. So
0: tell us about the German it. coup, Mark Paul.
2: Yeah, so the, the the German police this week um, um, announced that they had broken up um, a plot, a far right wing uh, plot to uh, to overthrow the entire German government and system uh, and install a, a completely new government. Um, they arrested twenty five people. Um, they, they announced they have fifty two suspects in all, so they've got another whatever twenty seven that that they're looking for. So they took it seriously. They took it seriously. Now, I mean, look, I'm not sure how seriously they should have taken it. It's called the Reichsberger movement. It's a it's a sort of a, a German QAnon, um, but a little bit dustier and. Fussier. Year may maybe wearing a tweed jacket um, and, and th- this this movement this old movement was going to install an old German aristocrat a guy called um, Prince Royce Heinrich VIII um, um, who looked like a retired geography teacher when they arrested him I mean he was wearing corduroys and, and, and a jacket a family doctor from Saxony was going to be the health minister um, somebody who actually has been over to visit Ireland was going to be the justice minister um, and, uh, and, and apparently these people were supposed to be the people who were going to overthrow the German state there was 3,000 police officers involved in the raids and you kind of Hang on a second. I mean, you know, one German MP uh, uh, said that he thought it was all a storm and a teacup. He says, Look at them. He says, They'd struggle to take over the town hall of San Marino. Um, so, look, it's a little bit of a, a pensioners' revolution sort of a thing. You I'm can, not sure how seriously they should have taken this. I, thing you
1: all. can see, though, that, like, I mean, there have been a couple of shootings um, and attacks related to the, the far right in Germany. And obviously, that's, that, that's a, a, an ongoing issue that they're dealing with there. So, you can understand why there perhaps would be a very um, fulsome response to this. I mean, especially when these people, like you said, they were kind of not taken that seriously generally in Germ- Germany. People tend to kind of think they're kind of these, these idiot conspiracy theorists. But you know, the fact there's what 21,000 people who are a member, a member of that, the Reichsburger uh, movement, and that they seem to be pushing up things. They were getting guns into into their hands in a way that they weren't before. Um, you can kind of see why they had that response I think.
0: Tell us what goblin mode is.
1: So goblin mode is, I suppose, <laughs> to me it's like, you know, when you want to like sit on the couch and watch uh, Netflix um, in your pyjamas and you, you know, maybe surround yourself by takeaway cartons and you you are retreating into yourself, the, the antithesis of being, you know, going out for your run in the evening. Um, that is goblin mode, really. It's a, like unapologetic, selfish behaviour. Behavior.
0: How could it be Oxford word of the year when most of us have never heard
1: of it before? That, that is a good point. I do wonder sometimes how they pick the Oxford word of the year. Maybe they just pick a talking point for people to talk about. But apparently it's because there's a vote and more than 300,000 people um voted for it to be word, word of the year, I think, with this particular case. And I suppose they see it as a reaction to the pandemic times and that people are saying, I'm not lazy, I'm not greedy, I'm not selfish, I'm actually just going into goblin mode, Um, which is, you could say, as well as a reaction to our, you know, capitalist uh, world as well. We're expected to be on somebody else's clock all the time.
0: Ivan Amolingar says, I'm very flippant about the German thing. The Socialist Party in the 20s was laughed at too well. I think that took an awful long period of time to develop in a more sinister way than this particular attempt to take over German democracy last thing to you Mark Paul, in a minute can you summarise for me your column in the business pages of the Irish Times today because you had a great cut at the NCT which I think will resonate with many of our listeners.
2: Well look I mean anybody who's been waiting for an NCT in Ireland over the last year or two has been waiting for Godot I mean you get, it takes about six months to get an NCT and it's it's a monopoly provider called Atlas, a Spanish company who runs it and it's like they really need to get their act together um, because people are driving around with no NCTs and they're driving around, it's an insurance and, and legal time bomb for people And if Atlas would just um, you know, uh, get a act together and maybe pay its mechanics a little bit more, and they have the cash to do it. Pay their mechanics a little bit more, you might be able. They to say attra- you can't find mechanics here or in Europe. Well, listen, I'm sure if you if you raise the rate of pay for them, I'm sure you'd find them, and you'd attract them from somebody else and um, um, outbid them, outbid other garages, and, and hire the mechanics. Sorry, but why also does
0: it, why does the roads authority allow there to be a monopoly, a private sector monopoly? Why aren't there competing NCTS that people can go to, which would make sure you got
2: the efficiencies? Well, because that's I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. In Sweden, which isn't a country a huge amount bigger than us, they have four of these companies, one of which is Apples to compete. But in Ireland, um, they have a monopoly contract. There's nowhere else for people to go. There's nowhere else, uh, n- nobody competing with them. And it's just that, you know, the only thing worse than a state monopoly uh, is a private one. Um, because, uh, uh, you know, you just end up with, with all the inefficiencies and, uh, and, and none of the benefits. Um, so anybody who's waiting for an NCT out there, I mean, you have my sympathy. It's, uh, it's, it's particularly frustrating. Um, and uh, hopefully, hopefully they get Together.
0: Mark Paul, business columnist for the Irish Times. Aoife Barry, assistant news editor with the journal.ie. Thank you both.
1: The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4 30.